Hello and welcome to Cognitive Urbanism. This is a relatively new podcast I started back in December 2014. And this is the third episode. I've um, really enjoyed some of the feedback I've gotten so far from those of you listening at home. Um, my name is Justin Hollander. I'm a professor at Tufts University in Urban Environmental Policy and Planning. And this uh, podcast has been a place where I have talked about various kind of topics of interest to those in the urban planning design architecture fields. Um, today, I want to just share some of my perspectives and insights about um, some big picture issues around development. Uh, it's the beginning of the New Year. Uh, today, I'm, I'm recording this podcast on January 6, 2015. So, Happy New Year to those listening um, um, around this time. The funny thing about this time of the year is I tend to go away and, uh, around the holidays. And this break, uh, I went to New Jersey and visited my in-laws. Now, New Jersey kind of has a bad reputation. I mean, of course, it is the Garden State. That's what they call themselves. But um, other people call New Jersey the armpit of America. The The state is actually quite a diverse landscape, um, including uh, very exciting, rich, dynamic urban centers, uh, lovely, uh, high amenity, high, highly desirable uh, suburban areas, well-preserved rural landscapes, and really everything in between. The, the state is quite an a, a interesting place to study and to learn about cities and, and, and regions. If you want to just uh, join with me a little bit of a history lesson, kind of going back to the completion of the interstate highway network, what we started to see starting in the, around the 1960s is the outward migration of people outside of cities into suburban areas and um, facilitation of a much more more significant driving commuting than had been uh, the case prior. So what this uh, American society began to recognize was that the freedom of the car and highways meant a new kind of development pattern. Some people called it suburbanization. Some people called it sprawl. So it was in the 1970s that awareness, particularly in the environmental community, began to grow about maybe this kind of new development pattern that so many people are really excited about. Maybe this isn't so great. This kind of questioning of suburban sprawl was uh, really in many ways hit its first major accomplishment when the White House, this was Jimmy Carter's White House, uh, the Center uh, Council for Environmental Equality, CEQ, released a report called The Costs of Sprawl. Not the first ones to kind of look at these questions, but that's certainly the most prominent. And and you can look at this report, this cost of sprawl report, many university libraries have a copy. It may be still available. You may be able to get a copy through the White House. The report began to tally up 
the challenges for local governments in particular uh, to allow that kind of sprawling development pattern. You know, acknowledging that people might want to live out far outside the city and drive to work, but that doesn't mean that local governments need to make it easy for them to do that. Okay, so what we're really talking about here is enumerating the costs to local governments for allowing the sprawling development pattern to happen. And really, just to kind of highlight a couple key items here, one is the the fiscal impact. And really, that was the, the focus of the report. As a local government outside, in a suburban geography, allows new development of new housing, the pressures on the the local government to provide services to that new housing, according to this CEQ, this White House report, exceeded the tax revenues that that those that new development generated. And and they've looked at both commercial development and industrial development and and, and, and residential as well. And, and looking at all these different sources, they they really came to the conclusion that the kind of standard model of suburban sprawl was not actually a good thing for most local governments located in the suburban areas. Instead, the report urged these kinds of communities to rethink that model and to try to come up with some uh, regulatory mechanisms to limit this sprawl-style development. You know, the main focus was on clustering development, but other kind of uh, fiscal tools were recommended. Well... Fast forward and coming into like the the next decade or so, the real estate development community partnering with local governments began to see an answer. Well, so when we talk about fiscal impacts of sprawl, what are we really talking about? More than anything else, we're talking about that every new housing unit produced a certain number of children. I don't know, let's just call it 1.5 children per housing unit. Um... And so what, what that does is that per, per, creates stress on the public school district to educate those children. So when you have new housing, let's say there's a farm in a town, a 100-acre farm, developer comes in, buys the farm, proposes to the town, I'm going to build 500 new houses, and that's going to produce, if, it, if you believe in the 1.5 uh, ratio, that's going to produce uh, 750 school children, uh, children, children, they're not all school children, um, and that that's going to have a certain uh, fiscal impact on the public school district. Now, I was a student doing my PhD at uh, Rutgers University, and Bob Burchell, he was really the king of these, this kind of analysis, the development impact analyses. And uh, he really, uh, working uh, with David Listikin as well, really uh, pioneered some of these, these uh, strategies for assessing what would the actual cost of this new development be on public schools, on other infrastructure, public safety, and whatnot. So the compromise that was developed in the 1980s was 55 plus, 55 years plus restricted, age-restricted communities. So the idea was that same farmer, instead of building 500 units of housing just in general, 
Instead, what they were going to do is they were going to build housing that was restricted only to older people, 55 plus, under the, the assumption that, that no children would be allowed to be living in these units. And, and henceforth, no strain on the public school district. Now, in, if you look at the cost of sprawl report back in the 70s, and there have probably been 30 more cost of sprawl report reports generated by various nonprofits or government agencies. I mean, this is a pretty um, well-researched area. Co- the cost of sprawl are not limited just to um, age restrict- um, the, uh, children in school districts. So the cost of sprawl are, are related to environmental issues or related to um, water quality, water quantity issues, air pollution, traffic congestion. So like, there are a lot of problems that sprawl, sprawl creates. But here was one that was a particularly big, uh, big ticket item on a, on, a, on a typical local government ledger. So if we could just allow the development to come in, 55 plus only, age restricted, no children, we're going to get the, all the benefit of those ta- that tax receipts, but... We won't have to pay that biggest cost of uh, of sprawl, the, the biggest believed to be cost. Well, that was a re- really popular idea, and and you look at New Jersey, and it's really the epicenter for this kind of fifty five plus age restricted housing. Though you see it all over the country, um, Sun Belt cities, Florida and California. You see it in Pennsylvania, and Massachusetts. Um, Few places I've been to, there you don't have some of this. And so, when I was in New Jersey, I actually stayed for a week. My in-laws, who live in a fifty-five plus community, and so they reminded me of a book uh, Seth Lowe wrote. She's an anthropologist. I think it's called Beyond, Beyond the Gates, and 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 she did the same thing. She lived at. Um, not they weren't. It was the study her study was not about age restricted. Her study was about gated communities. But um, but you know she's an anthropologist and and so I did my own little ethnography here and and I guess I wanted to talk to you guys about this and because here what you have is this community of I mean where my in laws live uh, it's got to be at least five hundred housing units and uh, while. Typically, couples move in. Um, you know, these are older people, and so they're not—they're not all occupied by two people. So, you know, maybe somewhere in the order of about eight or nine hundred people, and no children. But here's the creepy thing: there are people who have statues of children in the in the yards. The—you walk around on Halloween, nobody's trick or treating. You go on Christmas, there's people have decorations, but no caroling. The, the, this is not a place that represents the full spectrum of life in the way that us planner types kind of try to celebrate um, cities and, and uh, diversity. This is not diverse at all. But this is a, a zoning solution that was generated to solve the crisis of the cost of sprawl. And so I, I feel like it's important to talk about what it's like to live there. What is it like to be there? And what are some of the benefits? So as I mentioned, these people come in, the residents come in, they have to be at least 55. Um, my experience dealing with um, some of the neighbors and meeting some of my in-laws' friends, 
these these people generally actually are significantly older than 55. Uh, I would say the average age is closer to 70. And this is a brand new community, brand new development. It was only they started they started building maybe about five years ago, but they're still building. There are new people, new residents moving in and every day. And so yes, as when people move in, maybe they're in the late sixties, early seventies. But these houses are built to last for at least thirty years. This is not supposed to be a temporary, <laughs> some sort of like shanty town or something. So, built to last. You have these older people. There's no public transit. This is a community where everybody needs to drive. And so, when you reflect on the problems of urban sprawl and you look at this solution, you live there for a week, it's really remarkable because it's it's hardly clear that this is a sustainable solution. This is the kind of solution that we ought to be modeling, though it is modeled all over the country. You're, always, you're constantly seeing these kinds of projects. Um, so yeah, from a local government fiscal impact, maybe it's working, maybe it's providing some sort of net benefit uh, at a, on an annual basis, but you're creating these islands of what are eventually going to be elderly people where their ability to, to uh, get to services is so limited that it's, it's really disheartening. It's really disheartening. So I really, um, I appreciate you, uh, listening here, hearing this, uh, this podcast and I will be trying to get onto a, a semi-regular schedule of offering new podcasts every two to three weeks or so. Love to hear your thoughts about other topics that you're interested in hearing about. And um, I wish you all uh, all the best for 2015.